thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Uh, We need to be in your word and people of your word. Thank you that you gave it to us, uh, that your spirit continues to lead us and guide us into and through its truth that we would uh, increasingly become changed, transformed, and become more like the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We want to be more like him, and would you continue to bring to completion what you began in each one of us. We thank you and pray for this tonight, please, through these two chapters, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've read this before, but it's so good, I'm going to read it again, because it really fits with tonight. Okay, so Pilgrim's Progress. This should be on your read before you meet Jesus list, okay? Uh, If you've read it before, great. You know what you should do? Read it again. If you recall the story, Christian uh, is the hero of the story, and he starts off on a journey, and he's moving to the celestial city. And uh, along the way, he meets situations and things that sometimes you and I encounter, and you get to learn from him um, that the normal Christian life is uh, filled with, it's, it's not just being carried to heaven on a bed of roses. <laughs> There's um, land to take and enemies to fight. So anyway, here's one big enemy he has to fight. This is where he fights Apollyon. Now remember he has... Uh, He's on his journey, and Apollyon sees him and uh, accuses him of uh, abandoning his kingship for another. And so, let's see, whoops, here it is. By now, so Christian is, is on his journey, but now, in this valley of humiliation... Poor Christian was hard put to it, for he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. I like the old version. I don't like the new version. I like these old hard words. Yeah, before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts, semicolon. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground Forethought he, had I no more in mine eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. That's one sentence. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke. 
His mouth was the mouth of a lion. When he came up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance and thus began to question with him. And so he accuses him of leaving his service. And Christian says he much prefers the service of the Lord Jesus than than Apollyon. And Apollyon says that you've already been unfaithful to your new king. And Christian says... Wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? And Apollyon says, Thou didst faint at first setting out when thou was almost choked in the slew of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou shouldst have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice things. Thou wast also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey and of what thou hast seen and heard, thou art inwardly desirous of vainglory in all that thou sayest or doest. Christian says, All this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in and have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. Apollyon now in a grievous rage. I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and people. I come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian says, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. Apollyon, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal din that thou shalt go no farther. Here will I spill thy soul. And so they start fighting. Uh, Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise, Micah 7, 8. With that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, Romans eight thirty seven. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and spread him away, that Christian saw him no more. James 4, 7. So when the battle was over, Christian said, I will here give thanks to him that hath delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, to him that did help me against Apollyon. And so being refreshed, 
he addressed himself to his journey with his sword drawn in his hand, for he said, I know not, but some other enemy may be at hand. Great story. Sound like tonight? Yes, it does. Christian understands that what was part of his king's life will be part of his life. And so when he was faced with standing up and stepping into Apollyon, the great giant fiend, he pushed into him. He didn't back down, but he engaged it and he sent it fleeing. Tonight, we're going to look at Saul and David, continuing the comparison and contrast. Tonight, it's no longer no king, book of Judges. It's no longer our king, Saul, but it is God's king, David, who's on the scene. And it's appropriate for God's king to go through a giant rather than to avoid him. It's appropriate for God's king to go through a giant rather than to avoid him. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Saul. You see that pretty well? Not? Saul, the fretful avoider, and David, the faithful warrior. Those are the two key people besides Goliath in this two-chapter story. Saul, the fretful avoider, and David, the faithful warrior. It's appropriate for God's king to go through a giant rather than to avoid him. 1 Samuel is the book of the monarchy. The people ask for a king. Remember, no king. There were various judges who ruled over parts of Israel. Our king, Saul, which is most of 1 Samuel. God's king, is introduced here, but 2 Samuel covers David's life. So it's a time of transition in Israel when the people are asking for a king. And Israel has her heart set on having a king because she mistakenly believes her oppression by other nations is due to having no king and no army rather than her own unbelief and disobedience. So the people ask for a king. God gives them what they ask for. He gives them Saul. But we saw last time, after perhaps 25 years on the throne, Saul's lack of faith, courage, and obedience finally disqualify him from office. So God sets the people's choice, Saul, 
aside for someone better, his king. From chapter 15, verse 28. Remember where as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. God sets the people's choice, Saul, aside for someone better, his king, which we don't know yet, is David. Saul just can't be trusted to serve God fully and faithfully any longer, especially when circumstances get tough. Saul, the fretful avoider, he began well enough. He was chosen and anointed by God and Samuel, and he led Israel to some victories over her enemies. But fears and worries set in. He neither possessed nor requested wisdom. He was more concerned with displeasing people than with disobeying God. He lied about and rationalized his disobedience. And God removed his empowering spirit from him. This is not a five-month journey to become a fretful avoider. This is probably a 25-year journey, little by little. Remember, in the scriptures, not too many times do we see a blowout, but we often see a slow leak. And after 25 years of fretful avoider, fretful avoider, God is finally going to make a change. Let's talk just a second about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because God takes his spirit from Saul. And that's caused a lot of angst for a lot of people. God took his spirit from Saul. It is probably not indicative of his status, meaning when God chose him, he gave him a new heart. But it is a clear sign of God's removal of empowerment. Not his salvation, but his empowerment for God's work. Saul had proven himself unqualified to be God's instrument, to be God's king. And so he removes his empowering Holy Spirit from Saul. Don't go to the place of saying, oh my goodness, Saul, we're not going to see Saul in heaven. I don't think that's the case. I don't think you can reach that conclusion from that statement. This is an empowerment uh, statement, not a salvation statement. Does that make sense? Okay. So God took his spirit from Saul. It's probably not indicative of his status, but is a clear sign of God's removal of empowerment. What about for us today? Remember, we're taking a little parenthetical look here. For Christians today, we can quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Most people, myself included, think that's about not doing something that we should have done. We can grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4, 30, because of what we do. 
I can do wrong things, and I will grieve the Spirit. I cannot do right things, and that will quench Him. But in either case, we don't lose our status, our salvation, but we do run the very real risk of diminished empowerment for holy living. So much like with Saul, so for us today, although the Lord will never remove his Holy Spirit from us as he seems to have come and gone in the Old Testament, he never leaves the believer in the New Testament. But we can definitely quench him and grieve him, neither of which are good. But it doesn't mean we lose our salvation. But it does mean we're not going to be able to live the holy lives we want to. I hope that makes sense. Just a little parenthetical aside because God takes his spirit from, Paul, uh, from uh, Saul. Okay. Saul, the fretful avoider. He began well enough, but fears and worries set in. Oh, let's read this. Yeah, we got enough time. Oh, yeah, gosh, this is such a great story. And you know this story. It was probably told to you correctly as a child. And hopefully you read chapter 16 and 17 before you came tonight. It was only two chapters. Right, you probably got through that. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. And Samuel says, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And so God tells him what to do. So Samuel goes to town. Uh, he sees Eliab and he thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, it's a verse that you know very well. Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He goes through some more sons until he gets to verse 11. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? What must Jesse think of David? <laughs> He's the youngest. He can't be the guy. So I left him to tend the sheep. There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So David shows up, and the Lord said, This is the one, anoint him. What? <laughs> the Lord's picking the littlest guy, the youngest guy. He's not picking the biggest, strongest, most handsome guy. This is my favorite story. Can you tell why? <laughs> The runt. Man, if he can pick the runt, I love it. So he picks David. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And Samuel goes back to Ramah where he lived. Uh, now... Several of you asked this question, so I know it's on your mind if you read the chapters. Okay, it says at the end of chapter, almost the end of chapter 16, it says in verse 21, so David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. 
etc., etc. Chapter 17 comes along. He goes and fights Goliath. And at the end of chapter 17, Saul doesn't seem to know who David is. And you go, what has happened here? Probably, to put them chronologically, we have to insert chapter 17 into the end of 16. And what happens is Saul is being tormented by uh, an evil spirit. He hears about this harp guy. Well, this probably isn't the first time he's heard about him. He's been on the battlefield. So he's already done the whole Goliath thing. He's tormented by the evil spirit. He goes, i got to find something to play for me. Here comes David. David can play. And then it seems that David, instead of coming and going, David seems to have gone back and forth for a while. He no longer goes back and forth by the time he's at the end of 16. Verse 22, then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, please let David remain in my service for I am very pleased with him. So the coming and going stop and David is now living in the palace. So the author wasn't concerned in this particular part with telling us the chronological story. He's telling us some topical things. To get it chronological, you're going to need to put 17 into the end of 16. And then it'll all make sense. Because here's David. He's anointed. He's still going back and forth, right? And so in 17, his father says, go take some stuff to your brothers who are in the army, right? So he goes, and his brothers don't care for him. I wonder why. Bloop, 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 bloop. They saw the oil. They know what this means. How did that go with Joseph and his brothers? Not so well. <laughs> I have a dream. <laughs> You're all going to bow down to me. You know, we don't think so. <laughs> the brothers see this happening. They're, you know, whatever, jealous, envious, angry, disbelieving, whatever you want to say. David is coming and going, and his father sends him one day to take some stuff to his brothers and to their captain on the battlefield because now they're engaged in fighting the Philistines. Okay, chapter 17. So here, come the, here comes the champion of the Philistines. His name is Goliath. He was over nine feet tall. That's tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. You, see, you know what, a, like a cinder block? You know those gray cinder blocks? Those weigh about 40 pounds. So imagine, take some rope and hook three of those blocks together. Go ahead and just hang them on you. That's what this guy is wearing for armor. Something that weighs what three cinder blocks weigh. Nine feet tall. His... His javelin, a, have you ever seen a weaver's thing, weaver's beam? It's about like that. It's kind of like a three by three, a two by two, or a three by three. And the end of it is an iron, the iron tip weighs 15 pounds. Take 15 soup cans. 15 pounds. I couldn't even lift that rascal up. Can you imagine? This guy is unbelievable. Nine feet tall. Ugh. He's wearing all this stuff, big bronze helmet, and he's got a little guy out in front of him who's holding up his shield, his armor bearer, <laughs> like he needs it. So he goes out every day 
And he says, I defy, verse 10, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and all the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Saul is the fretful avoider. Whose job is it? Saul's. Lead our armies into battle. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) David happens to go up to the camp with some stuff for the brothers. Verse 15, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. So this is why David is going back and forth because he's still got a job at home. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. David gets there. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. When you go to Israel, when you go to Israel, you will stand in the Valley of Elah and you will see on one side where the Israelite army was and you'll see on the other side where the Philistine armies were. And you'll see on this big football, si- football field-sized thing in the middle where Goliath would have walked like this in the morning and in the evening, strutting around in front of them. And they're up on the hill. Ah! As soon as the Israelite armies see him do this, they begin to run away in fright. What does David say? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And they tell him, well, here's the reward for killing this rascal, fighting him. And so David's question was reported to King Saul, verse 31, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Now, wait a minute. See, now, if we fight them and you win, good, they're our slaves. Hmm. You lose, we're their slaves. Hmm. This for Saul, this has got to be a big decision. Because <laughs> here you've got this young man who says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I'll go fight after 40 days. Eee. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. What does David say? I've killed the lion and the bear to rescue my flock, and I'll do the same to this guy. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. (laughs) Then Saul gives David his armor. That doesn't work. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David takes them off. He picks up five smooth stones from a stream, and he puts them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walks out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Does it sound like Apollyon? (laughs) 
Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? <laughs> and he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. <laughs> this is a great movie. You're like, yes! You're jumping up and saying, go get him, David. Looks crazy. Go get him. As Goliath moves closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurls it with his sling and he hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And Israel chases them and they pillage him and all kinds of stuff. And then Saul is trying to find out who is this guy. And you come back to the end of chapter 16 and they continue this coming and going sort of relationship until Saul says... I want you to stay here and live with me in the palace. Okay, so there's 16 and 17 and how they hook together. Saul, the fretful avoider. David, the faithful warrior. The two comparing, being compared and contrasted in this story with a giant. Okay? All right. Saul, the fretful avoider, began well enough, but fears and worries set in. And though seeing the giant, he avoided him. Goliath blasphemed Israel for 40 days. Saul paced the sidelines in fear. The size and ferocity of the giant seemed to have paralyzed him, became bigger than his God. So Saul did nothing. His strategy was avoidance. All proof that God had made the correct call to get another king. David, the faithful warrior, he's a faithful and obedient son. When we first meet David, he's serving his father by tending the flock. And remember what one of his brothers says? You know, don't you have a job to do to go take care of those seven or eight sheep? Shouldn't you be getting yourself back home? But David is faithful over what's been put in front of him. What does the Lord say? Faithful in little, faithful over much. We're introduced to David, who is a faithful and obedient son. He's also a humble servant. His abilities were known by others. And though probably now anointed, right? Bloop, 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 bloop. This happens before, probably before chapter 17. I'm the anointed king. I'm the guy. What does David do? Nothing. He served humbly and even, quote-unquote, beneath himself without complaint. 
a faithful and obedient son, a humble servant, and a victorious warrior. David was indignant that Goliath was in their land. In contrast to Saul, David saw only the size of his God, not the size of the giant. In faith, he ran at Goliath, attacked him, and killed him, gaining a great victory for himself and Israel. Reminds me of someone we know and love. A picture of our greater David, the Lord Jesus, also a faithful and obedient son, a humble servant, and a victorious warrior. This is a great story. What's the application? It's appropriate for us to go through our giants rather than avoid them. We've talked before, if you've been with us, especially when we went through the Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, we talked about the land of man's soul. Remember that? There are giants in the land of man's soul. Those giants that live in your land and in mine. For instance, there's a giant, maybe he's just in me, a giant named Self-Reliance and his wife named Safety. Those two giants live in my man's soul. You don't want me to pull out this book, <laughs> but I'm gonna. Or as you say in Texas, I'm fixing to. I call this giant the giant comfort and ease. This is his chapter on worldliness. I say this to you because this is a convicting chapter for me. If it happens to be a convicting chapter for you, you're welcome to listen in. He talks about uh, worldliness. He says, I define, from 1 Corinthians 7, 31, he says, I define worldliness as being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. A little while later, he says, worldliness, he sort of elaborates on the definition. Worldliness means accepting the values, mores, and practices of the nice but unbelieving society around us without discerning whether or not those values, mores, and practices are biblical. Worldliness is just going along with the culture around us as long as that culture is not obviously sinful. Again, as he speaks to me, he, he says, I want to talk to you about three things. First, money. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Bridges. America is the wealthiest nation in the world, and our prosperous middle class is unparalleled in all of history. But the way we handle money is scandalous. 
In 2004, the average household income after taxes was $52,287. And yet, as I mentioned in Chapter 13, the average household credit card debt is $7,000. Even worse, from that income of over $52,000, the average household's giving for all causes was $794 in a year. The above statistics are, of course, based on our entire population. Surely evangelicals do better than that. Yes, they do, but not by much. They gave 4.4%, which was down from 6.2% in 1968. Uh, not only are we giving less to our churches, but it seems that more of what we do, what we do give is spent on ourselves. And then he has two other areas that are just too horrible to read. <laughs> so he says, let me review my twofold definition of worldliness. First of all, it's a preoccupation with the things of this temporal life. Second, it's accepting and going along with the values and practices of society around us without discerning if they are biblical. I believe the key to our tendencies toward worldliness lies primarily in the two words, going along. We simply go along with and accept the values and practices of society around us without thought as to whether those values and practices are biblical. I call that giant comfort in ease. Others, a giant, uh, it's a, something that seems as if it'll kill you or take away the life you once had. And some of you think, I don't have any giants in my life. Let me just walk through some ideas. Maybe you don't. The giant of standing up for my faith in public to be known as a Christian wherever I am, regardless of the cost. The giant of telling others about my faith in Jesus and their need for him. Fear and his brother insecurity. How I look, how I act, what happens when. It's that people-pleaser side of all of us. As I've already said, self-reliance, um, I bow the knee to no one. What about other things? A long-term illness of a spouse, child, or loved one. Is that a giant in your life? How about the giant of your past and how it disqualifies you from serving the Lord in the present? They all seem to operate on the retribution principle. Things aren't great now, but they could be worse if I step into this. We all have giants in man's soul. How do we attack them? Because remember, it's appropriate 
as our king did, it's appropriate for us to attack the giant, not to avoid it. How do we attack the giant? With the smooth stone of prayer offered in faith. For instance, Hebrews 11.6 or 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 6. Notice that faith believes God not only exists, but rewards those who earnestly, consistently, and dependently seek him. The smooth stone of prayer offered in faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You're reminded of chapter 4, remember when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted. Notice, if you go back and look at those tomorrow morning, notice how specific and targeted Jesus' responses are from the Word. And you have to have a firm foundation, a firm standing on our, your true status and identity from Romans 5 through 8 and Galatians 2.20. How do you attack the giant? Smooth stone of prayer offered in faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Remember when Christian is fighting Apollyon? The sword flies out of his hand. He despairs. But as God would have it, he manages to get the sword again. And the first thrust is from Micah 7.8. The next thrust is from Romans. And he uses the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to attack the giant and send him fleeing. The smooth stone of prayer offered in faith and the sword of spirit, the word of God. I love Cody's illustration. I've thought about it quite a bit and it fits in with this first one. Remember his story about Alexander the Great and the fellow who had asked him to pay for his daughter's wedding? And remember what Alexander the Great allegedly had concluded about you know, giving all that money to that guy for that? And he's like, he knows I'm rich. And he believes I'm generous. So I gave it to him. Is our God rich? <laughs> Ephesians 1.3 Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm is already laid up for you in the vault. It is yours. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Our Father and our King is very, very Wealthy. Do you also believe he's generous? Then will you ask him? Will you ask him for something? He is very, very wealthy. And if Alexander the Great can say, he believes I'm wealthy and he believes I'm generous and so I'm giving it to him. How much more our daddy who loves to give us what we need A question. Tonight, if you are completely honest, which character better describes you? Saul, the fretful avoider. He sees the giant in his life, 
but is, is avoiding him. He's let the size of the giant overwhelm the size of his God. Or are you like David, the faithful warrior? He hasn't let the size of the giant become larger than the size of his God and is running at and attacking the giant even now. If you were to pick a giant tonight, as you're pulling the covers up, and you think, you know, there is a giant in my life, what are you going to do tomorrow? If you've been avoiding that giant or saying there's just nothing I can do, that's just the way life is, how do you need to pick up those smooth stones of prayer in faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and tomorrow begin attacking, attacking that giant? What scriptures would you use? What would you ask your daddy for to combat that giant? I do not own stock in this company or in this book, but this is a really, really good book, Respectable Sins. He will have three or four chapters at the very beginning of the book that will describe in much more detail what I just described to you. Great stuff. And then he'll have, oh, I don't know, a few respectable sins. I call them giants in the land of Mansoul uh, that are still probably at work in my life and are still probably at work in yours. If you've never heard of this book before, he has a chapter on ungodliness. And you say, whew, that one's not me. <laughs> Anxiety and frustration. Discontentment. Unthankfulness. Pride. Selfishness. Lack of self-control. Impatience and irritability. Anger. The weeds of anger. Judgmentalism. Envy, jealousy, and related sins. <laughs> sins of the tongue and worldliness. Some really, really horrible, bad, awful, nasty giants that live in man's soul. That if you think, I have no giants living there right now, our dearly departed Mr. Bridges would beg to differ and give you some new lenses to look at your life. I think it's well worth your time. For next week, read 1 Samuel 18 through 21, just a few chapters. We will begin approximately 7 p.m. Approximately 7 p.m. As soon as the membership meeting lets out, I'll be here and if... Uh, you're going to join me then. It'll be about 7 o'clock, I think. Let me pray for us, and we'll be finished for tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you for the example of Saul. I can learn from him about uh, ways that I avoid and fret and allow a giant to become larger than you. 
So thank you for what I can learn from Saul. I thank you from how I can be inspired by David and by the Lord Jesus, my greater David, who was an obedient son and a humble servant and a victorious warrior who attacked the giants he saw because of how big he saw you to be. And the giant never rivaled you. Continue to inspire me with that big, big picture of you. We love you. Help us to walk in faith, to walk in uh, trust, to continue to open our Bibles, memorize it, and use it as the sword of the Spirit with the smooth stones of prayer offered in faith. And tomorrow, give us the courage to get off the sideline and to attack one of these giants who's living in your land inside of us. We pray you do that, please. Uh, not that we would gain anything from it except for the freedom that you've already given us, but that you would be glorified, as David said, that everyone will know there is a God in Israel, and everyone would know that there is a God, and he is the ruler of my life, and he is victorious, and he delivers. And you will get all the credit. We love you, and we thank you for your word and for all these things tonight. And pray for them, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.